Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, coming to you from uh, the usual place at the usual time. I don't know why I said it that way. Um, But we are doing something uh, not entirely different, but uh, uh, something that we've only done occasionally. We're doing an AMA episode. This in part has to do with the the complications of my schedule the week or two weeks after um, the election, uh, which is why uh, our beloved friend uh, Chris Starwalt uh, subbed for me on the first episode of the week. And, um, you know, and, and, and Ryan's gone off to do, you know, more exciting things. And so the drive time, a lot, we got a lot of feedback from people saying that they preferred the AMA thing to the drive time thing. I'm not killing the drive time thing, but we're just, uh, we're going to give this one, we're going to kick the tires on this one again, um, and see where it takes us. So we have, uh, my in, intrepid amenuensis or major domo, uh, 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 guy who's here. Um, guy, welcome back to the remnant. Although you're like always here, you just, sitting in the wings like Renfield waiting for, for our orders. Yes, you take the bull gag out only on special occasions, much like with my predecessor. Um, now, as we discussed, I don't make those jokes anymore. You can because, make them about me. My family uh, never complain. All right. <laughs> Does your family listen to this podcast? My mother doesn't even know what it is. Okay. So no. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, did we get many responses or questions? Yes, we did. People care, Jonah. They do care. Uh, my That's... interest may have completely evaporated, but people at home are still invested. Well, I did say when I interviewed you that one of the side effects of working for me is that you end up dead inside. Um, um, it wasn't really a problem for for Jack Butler, but because um, he was never alive inside to begin with. Exactly, he was. He was barely qualified for carbon based life. So, um, um, um. Why don't we just, uh, can we, uh, we don't have Coopers and Liburn here to attest um, this statement, but you will agree that I have not heard these questions in advance and do not know what they are. We have not discussed what questions you should or shouldn't ask me. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Okay. So, uh, 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 and don't think you're going to get off this podcast without talking to us a little bit about this kiss thing, but uh, (laughs) let's, 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 let's go through the the forms. What is, where do you want to begin? I figured you were too frazzled to remember that, but I should have known better. Anyway, yeah. um, obviously, start with some punditry kind of stuff, I guess, right? Or uh, do, well, do, any way you want to do it. As I was going to say an obvious starting point is how's Pippa holding up? Ah, uh, okay. So for for listeners who are uh, who have hearts three sizes three sizes too small uh, and don't care, um, Pippa had surgery. She had a tumor removed. 
Um, uh, it was benign. That was a good part, but it was in a weird place near some stuff. And she seems to be doing great. Uh, we gave up on the cone of shame pretty early because she wasn't trying to go after it. You know, the reason why you have to wear the cone of shame isn't to punish dogs for having had surgery. It is to prevent them from, from, um, chewing on, chewing out stitches or sutures or any of that kind of stuff. She didn't seem interested in doing any of that, maybe in part because she couldn't reach the, the, the parts that she'd like to get at. She has been scooting a little too much, which can't be good post-surgery um, for surgery in your, your what the biologists call your buttle region. Um, and um, uh, But we are a little more concerned about, there is this thing out there, uh, particularly Cocker Spaniels. Zoe's, uh, I mean, uh, Pip is a uh, English Springer, but... Um, is a real thing called spaniel rage where uh, spaniels can be prone to like sudden outbursts of anger. Pippa has become weirdly territorial in recent, in the last six months around Zoe and has been growly and like violating the first rule of don't write checks. Um, your butt can't cash kind of thing. Cause, and that's our main concern is that Zoe, I mean, Pippa in a rage moment, could do real damage to Zoe once and then Zoe would kill Pippa and that would be the end of this drama. And, um, and Twitter would, Twitter would end as we know, well, it's already ended as we know it, but it would end even further as we know it if Zoe killed Pippa. Um, so we're a little concerned about that. If anybody has like serious, you know, like serious, uh, recommendations about how to deal with incipient episodes of Spaniel Ridge, um, let me know and please don't be like, tell Pippa that she's spending too much time on social media because that's not what I'm talking about. So, um, but she's doing well and um, she's getting really spoiled and she's almost forgiven us for sending her to the bad place. Well, we may as well pivot away from the sweetness of that and do punditry. Somebody asked, what approach should the Slim House GOP majority take to get it back to electability in time for 2024? It's an interesting question. I... I think it's very easy to come up with what that approach should be. Uh, it's very, very hard to see how it's doable, right? I mean, it's sort of like um, um, imagine you have a very expensive car that somehow you have managed to wedge into the, between the walls of a very, very tight alley. And, uh, it's very easy to say, well, you should back out, right? <laughs> um, it's, it's very difficult to see how you can do it without scratching the crap out of your car. Um, um, you know, the, we don't know right now the final count yet, right? I, it's, there's still, a, it's still like plus or it's like 218, 219, 220, somewhere in there. Although I got to say for, um, for listeners out there of my age who remember the movie, Mr. Mom, uh, really underrated film. Uh, all of these estimates about where people talking about where the final count of Republicans are going to come down. Every time they say it, it looks like it's going to be 220, I immediately want to say 220, 221, whatever it takes. And if you haven't seen the movie, you're just not going to get the reference, and I'm not going to explain it to you. But anyway, so I, I think the smart thing to do would be like be grownups, right? I mean, th this is, um, you know, this is one of the great through lines of all of my punditry for the last seven years is. Republicans would be doing very well for themselves if they could just not be crazy. And um, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've written some version of, of, of that column. And 
if the Republican Party could be boring in the sense of just being serious and competent and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, uh, I don't think it needs to... It, there are certain conservative wish list things that I would love to see them pursue if they could do it successfully, but I don't think that's essential po- political stuff. Just be competent, serious, normal people, which would make the Democrats look like incompetent, unserious, abnormal people, by contrast, is all they need to do. But you can't do that when um, people like, what's his face, Massey, um, can't remember what his first name is, um, you know, he's the bozo with the, where everybody was armed to the teeth for their Christmas card. Um, you know, he told Politico or somebody this week that he loves the result of all of this because if the Republicans had won with a 40 seat majority, um, he wouldn't have mattered. He could be sidelined. But now he thinks he's like the Joe Manchin of the Republican caucus. And that's his analogy. And he says he's going to hold up everything and like they can't do anything without his support. And he's going to leverage the hell out of it, you know, and so that means probably taking the fluoride out of the water and all that kind of stuff. Um, with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, uh, God, whatever Massey's first name is, Massey, and a half dozen of other of these people, uh, plus, you know, the slightly less crazy but still wildly irresponsible House Freedom Caucus guys. Um, I shouldn't say they're all like that. You know, uh, our own uh, uh, Haley Bird had a very good piece on um, um, on some of the things that the House Freedom Caucus was demanding or might demand uh, for their support for McCarthy. And I got to say, reading it, I'm like, I'm actually in favor of a lot of these things. Um, maybe not for the reasons they're in favor of it, but uh, so it makes me wonder, you know, are there more, are, are, are there more reasonable people in House Freedom Caucus than I realize these days? Because um, that used to be uh, a disqualifying quality as being reasonable um, to join. But regardless, McCarthy doesn't have the chops to, to deal with like his own version of the squad. Um, if you actually need Paul Gosar's vote for anything, um, there's just no way you're going to, or Andy, forget it, or Andy Biggs, or, you know, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all these people, if you need their votes to get anything done, um, the idea of communicating that you're the serious, sober-minded uh, responsible patriotic party is just very, very, very difficult. Um, so the difference between what they should do and what they can do, the Delta there is just really, really big. I did like, I was listening to the commentary podcast yesterday and, uh, Noah Rothman is a great guy, brilliant guy. I like him a lot. Um, but he's so clearly an autodidact. Like he's learned everything just from reading. And, um, sometimes his pronunciations of words are just out there. And, uh, I love that he referred to, uh, he kept pronouncing Paul Gosar as Gozer, as in like from Ghostbusters. And I kind of want that to stick, you know. It explains a lot, Yeah, Gozer the Gozerian. (laughs) Of course, he's a demonic Stygian sub-beast. It kind of works. So anyway, long answer, but I think it's generally right. Uh, another pandity question, but I'm sure won't provoke a similarly long answer. Another listener asked, I fear that with Trump looking weaker and weaker as a general election candidate, Democrats will repeat the midterm strategy and prop him up because they think they can beat him in a general election. This would obviously be very bad for democracy, the GOP, and our general political sanity. Do you think this concern is valid, and is there anything that can be done to prevent it, if so? I think it's definitely valid. I think that... uh 
I think I think I saw Terry McAuliffe say today or yesterday that um, Democrats really want him to run. I mean, I think it's something that is just out. It's out there as an idea kind of thing. Um, I think the drawback of it for Democrats is the Democratic base, which in a big chunk of it is basically just anti-Trump in all things, um, will have much less tolerance for that than they did for, you know, boosting yokels, freaks, cranks, um, and carny folk the, the way they did for the House and Senate race. You know, it's one thing to, like, boost, you know, that crackpot who took Pete Meyer's seat. It's another thing to have spent five years saying that Donald, or six years saying that Donald Trump is literally Hitler, authoritarian, threat to democracy, yada, 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 um, and then being caught helping him. Um, so I could see the Lincoln Project type crowd doing that um, because it's it's a business model. But um, the idea that I don't know what exactly the Democrats could do in a serious way to boost Trump that wouldn't risk getting caught. Um, and instead, I think just relying on the self-interest of the media, which loves covering Trump, and the self-interest of various um, independent actors would probably do as much to boost him as anything else. But I, 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 I share the concern that someone's thinking about how to do it. Um, how you stop it, I think, again, I'm not... I, I have real reservations about DeSantis, which we can get to, but like, so far, I think his strategy is the right one, which is just to sort of uh, be bored by it, look down with a little contempt about it. Um, um, I think that the way the New York Post responded to Trump's announcement is fantastic. Um, and just generally take the attitude like Trump is boring in yesterday's news. And so far, Trump is helping with that a little bit because his announcement speech, um, I haven't watched the whole thing, but I watched a big chunk of it, is pretty... Um, pretty boring um and i think ill-advised so i guess that's it well to that point another listener asked who besides ron DeSantis has a good shot at the gop presidential nomination in 24 and who would you like to see either be nominated or mount a campaign okay so uh, we should start laying down ground rules for all this in, in sort of jonah 2.0 world you know since i've left nr and all that kind of stuff i'm much less comfortable like backing specific politicians than i once was um uh and i got to figure out some ways to talk about this that don't make me a hypocrite or inconsistent and all that kind of stuff not that anybody really cares you know but like if i'm going to start promoting certain standards of how you do this kind of thing. And then I violate them myself. It's kind of a problem. So I, I'm still working through that. That said, um, I, I also just sort of lay down now. I'll probably be writing about it again the next thousand times, but uh, you heard it here first. My basic theory is right now could change depending on the facts is that DeSantis is going to end up being more useful for taking out Trump than actually being the nominee. I know that everybody thinks he's going to be the, if it's not Trump, it's going to be DeSantis as the nominee right now. I'm not convinced by that. It's definitely possible. It's definitely a reasonable position to take. Um, I'm not saying people are crazy for thinking that. But, you know, every time I talk to somebody who spent any time with DeSantis, they say he's um, got really, really, really low emotional intelligence. 
Like he just doesn't know how, like a little bit of sort of on the spectrum. He doesn't know how to read people. He doesn't command a room very well. Um, doesn't have a lot of interpersonal charisma. Um, but what he has is, you know, great focus. It's like he's like hyped up on, you know, uh, on ADHD drugs or something. And I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying like he's he's really focused on detail, which is why his culture war stuff, his battles are so well picked most of the time. Um because he looks at it as basically like a data question rather than like a gut, you know, culture question. And so he picks his battles really, really well. That said, I think having, having really bad EQ um, does not help you on the campaign trail over time. And um, I've seen too many of these boomlets for uh, the next thing. Um, I mean, you're, too young to remember some of these kinds of things, but like I, you know, me and Rich Lowry used to talk about this all the time. There was like a two month period where if you doubted, just even doubted that Fred Thompson was going to be the next president of the United States, people were like, Oh my God, you just don't get it. You know? And like, that was actually where it crystallized for me that, uh, when people like everybody, every now and then will say, you just don't get it. And sometimes it's perfectly fine and valid, but there's a kind of political argument um, that rests on you just don't get it because there's something that's ungettable about it. You know, there's like you, you sort of it's 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 the question mark question mark question mark stage two of your three point plan, um, and uh, and people anyway. So people were convinced Fred Thompson was going to be it, and people were convinced that Scott Walker was going to be it. People were absolutely losing their minds about Rick Perry being it. And all of them flamed out for various reasons. Um, now, I'll say well, the main reason most of them flamed out is they didn't do their homework, um, which is my great grievance against all politicians that have a charismatic sort of organic fit with their audience. Um, like, that's the thing that can't be bought. But the thing that can be bought is good research. I mean, you just get a binder and do your research, whatever. And Rick Perry refused to do his research uh, Sarah Palin refused to do it. Um, uh, Fred Thompson, you know, was just too bored with politics. He wanted to watch college football. Um, you know, he he basically ran a campaign like he was the third member of Bartles and James, and he just wanted to sit on a porch whittling, going do 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 do. And um, uh, and that's not DeSantis. DeSantis works hard and he does his homework, so maybe this won't apply. But I I, I kind of suspect he will flame out. And, um, um, but if he does it in the process of taking out Trump, that's great. So the, who, the people, the people I like right now, I got to say right now, my favorite guy who's probably going to run is Chris Sununu. Um, I like his attitude a lot. I don't know everything about his positions. I was having a talk with our, um, friend and colleague Ramesh Paneru last night about his positions on abortion, which sounds sort of complicated for, at least for, you know, a pro-life party, but, um, they're not, that's not my top of mind qualification the way it is for Ramesh, but I really like his attitude towards this whole thing. I love listening to governors throw shade at the U S Senate as a useless institution. I'm not a, you didn't say it's useless, but there's sort of like an uninteresting institution, um, which he does all the time when he does like Sunday shows, I think is really kind of fun. Um, I'm a huge New Hampshire file to begin with. Um, so I like him a lot. Um, I don't know. 
I don't like basically any of the, I mean, I might like them personally in one way or another, but like, I'm not a big fan of anybody who worked for the Trump administration running. None of them are my top tier, including, I have to say, Nikki Haley, um, who I was very bullish on for a very long time. My wife worked for, full disclosure this, full disclosure that, yada, yada, yada. Um, I think she has lost her uh, gut instinct for politics that she used to have really, really well. Um, I'm not saying she can't have it back. I just, she's, I just don't think she's, she's handled her post Trump administration career very well. Um, plus I just kind of like the idea of having worked for Trump, having some political baggage for you. So that means no Pompeo. Um, I don't know who else from the administration wants to run. I can't remember, but, um, uh, and then, I don't know who else, who else are we talking about? I mean, like Asa Hutchinson is a perfectly fine guy, you know, great. Um, Larry Hogan, if I thought he had a chance, great, but no, I don't think he does. Um, I mean, I, I, I admire the guy a lot. I think he was a good governor. Um, and if he could make the case that he could win, that would be great. Um, uh, Liz Cheney, I don't think has a chance. Um, I don't think that's a really controversial statement among people who follow politics closely. Um, but I have enormous, respect for her. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting somebody. Um, you know, Ben Sass, obviously friend of this podcast, uh, uh, would, always, Carlson. would create a conflict for me. I don't put it past Tucker Carlson to run. <laughs> um, he, Shona just gave me, gave me the most delightful scowl I've seen in some time. I think I get that reaction. Would, uh, have to, uh, he would have to do a lot to earn my support. I'll just put it that way. Shifting gears to something lighter so that you don't burst into flames and I don't get fired and consequently deported. A listener asks, do you have a favorite meal to eat while traveling or on a road trip? And are there any reliable fast food favorites that can get you through those long hours on the road? Interesting question. So I got to lose a bunch of weight. My, um, uh, my COVID experience drove me to act. Well, let me put it this way. We had the AI annual dinner last night. And, um, um, when I got back from the airport from Tampa, I went straight to a tux rental place because my pre COVID tux was not an option. And I did not want to take out, uh, like Dick Cheney's eye when one of the buttons flew off of it. So, um, uh, uh, <laughs> I nearly made a Dan Crenshaw joke, but that would have been an incredibly poor taste. Yeah, it would have. And um, so uh, one of the reasons I, when I lost all that weight the last time, I was um, doing the no carb thing. And that was the best thing. The best thing about it was that that is the one thing, it's the one diet you can kind of stick to on the road. You know, is you just eat big, big pieces of meat. And, um, um, and part of the problem for me is like being on the road. I, I, I don't love being on the road. I mean, there was a time when I was younger, I thought it was a lot of fun and kind of glamorous and interesting and just no more. And I, I feel a lot of self pity when I'm on the road and it feels, you know, I just feel sorry for myself. And so I like I I'll eat, you know, um, I, I'll even from time to time imbibe alcohol. And, uh, and so, uh, I don't have any sort of go-to thing that, I don't feel guilty eating except for just big, large pieces of meat, you know, like getting a good steak and that kind of thing. Um, 
my favorite fast food to actually eat is probably Chipotle. Um, and like sometimes that's that will be my my terrible indulgence. But um, I don't have, um, I, I have not figured, I have not, I don't have the life hack for how to eat on the road in ways that uh, um, are both healthy and don't lead to a shame spiral. Um, I wish I did. If people have suggestions, I'm all yours. I thought this was a good question. Are there any political fights that you regret having, even if you think you were right on the merits? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, for sure. I mean, I could probably, if you gave me a few minutes, I could probably come up with a whole bunch of them. But like the, it's hard to explain to people what the sort of height of the blogging era was like, where you were just constantly getting dragged into these fights with various people. Um, um, I regret a lot, regret a lot of those. I regret some places where my spats with Andrew Sullivan went. Um, um, I have a very complicated view of Andrew, um, but things got kind of ugly between us and I don't think that was necessary. I mean, look, again, I think I was susceptible to sort of getting carried away with arguments and all that kind of stuff, but so were the people I was arguing with. So I don't accept all of the blame at all. But, you know, things got really nasty between me and Matt Iglesias. I think he deserves his he shares a lot in the blame, but so do I. Um, uh, I I can't even remember what half of them were about, but um, uh, it got kind of ugly. I kind of regret that. Um, I regret a lot of that kind of nasty spat stuff. Um, I got into a really stupid, stupid thing with this guy who I think is affirmatively a jackass, this guy Juan Cole, uh, that I was foolish to get into back during the Iraq war stuff. Um, uh, and on that, you know, I think you can make a case that I was not as right as I thought I was at the time because it was about the Iraq war stuff. doesn't mean I necessarily think he was right because not, I don't think he's a good guy. Uh, but, um, gosh, um, and a part of the problem, and, and Catherine Lopez, my former colleague at national review, um, she talks about that. We always talk about this is that one of the things that has helped me stay sane over the years with all that uh, grading on a curve, um, is that, uh, I try really hard to not nurture grievances and resentments about some people. And, um, um, and so back in the old days, I would have to like every now and then I would email Catherine and be like, Remind me why we hate this guy again. Um, and uh, and sometimes the answer would be insufficient. I mean, it would be accurate, but it would be insufficient for me to continue hating them. Um, and then there are other people I just, I can never really, I can forgive, but I can't forget in the sense that, some, particularly in the Trump era, there's some people who have I've gotten to some nasty stuff with who have shown me what their character is. So I can forgive it in the sense that I'm not going to like make a big deal of it for the rest of my life or like shun them overly. But, um, uh, on the other hand, I'm never going to trust them the same way because I, I, I kind of saw who they really are. I should probably have brought this up after Pippa, but the listeners or many listeners also demanded a Thethoon update, Jonah, and want to know how Gracie is doing. Okay, so Gracie lives in Washington, D.C. with her f 
DC family, who's my cat. She is fine. She is Ruben-esque um, and makes no apologies for it. Um, uh, Fafoon and Paddington were my mom's cats, whom, and my mom loved them dearly. They are still at her house. Um, they're going to stay there for the time being. And then, barring some other option, Drew, the woman who, who, who was my mom's constant companion and took care of her in her final days, to whom I'm eternally grateful, um, Drew will probably end up adopting both of them because th- we don't want to separate them. And she loves them and she reminds them of my mom and reminds her of the, my mom and all that. Um, but she's holding off doing that right now because she has her own cat who is 19 years old. And it's not fair to anybody to introduce two stranger cats to a other cat kind of thing. So um, they're perfectly fine. They're getting fed. They're getting visited by friends and whatever. And Amnesty International checks in on them. But they're still in my mom's house. And, uh, and Drew spends a lot of time in there because we're doing some stuff with it. So they'll be fine. If I thought that wasn't the case, I would be working night and day to make sure that they get a, a good place to be. Cause like, it's one of those things sort of like, you know how there are lots of things we have rights to that aren't mentioned in the constitution. And just because they weren't mentioned, just because they weren't enumerated in the constitution, um, doesn't mean the founders didn't consider them, consider them a right. Uh, my mom didn't specifically say, Jonah, you must make sure these cats are happy in her will. But it's just, in a Straussian sense, implied between the lines and all of the significant silences. So the cats will be fine. A question of rank nerdery of a different kind. What were your favorite Marvel characters, storylines, or titles when you were a kid? Interesting question. Um, First and foremost, loved all of the John Byrne and Chris Claremont uh, X-Men stuff. Uh, really that's, I, I think the, you know, it's, it's hard for people to understand because the Avengers movies are so much better than the X-Men movies, but, but they made the X-Men movies first cause those were the most popular comics. Um, and, um, um, that whole time period, including the, um, Days of Future Past stuff with the X-Men was fantastic. I think Wolverine was a great realized character, probably overused. Um, um, I loved uh, the Frank Miller run of Daredevil, um, which was really fantastic. And beyond that, you know, I, I it's funny. There are certain things you can say around nerds that even nerds will think is too nerdy. Um, but... Uh, I guess I, I was a really big fan of the Micronauts for a long time, and I can't really explain to you why, and I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to say so. I went on a kiss cruise, Jonah. I uh, yeah, well, judge. I'm not embarrassed to say so in front of you. I just, you know, it's, it's the rest of the people out there. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that's it. I mean, that's that's people people who know comics will know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's that's all right. Somebody asked if you will ever take a break from our unfolding political nightmare and rank your favorite Star Trek franchises from least favorite up. Okay, so this is tough because favorite and rewatchable are not necessarily synonymous terms, right? So like, uh, it's been a long time since I watched any of the original series. 
And every now and then I'll, maybe I'll stop and watch a little bit for the kitsch or like, oh my gosh, I forgot about this or that or whatever. But I think it's my favorite because it's just, it's the thing that started it all. It's like, um, you know, establishes the canon. Um, I really like Star Trek Next Generation when it was on air. And now I'm kind of embarrassed about some of the stuff that I liked in that. I mean, there's still some very well-written and well-done episodes, but, you know, um, some of it is just terrible, in part because what they were trying to do was, like, correct for the mistakes of the original Star Trek, and no one should, they should never have been embarrassed by anything from the original Star Trek. But, you know, if you watch the first couple seasons of Next Generation, it's sort of like, let's zag everywhere the old one zigged. And so, you know, the captain of the new, enter, you know, in in Next Generation, the captain is a Euro weenie whose first resort is always diplomacy. Um, And and he actually tries to take seriously this idea that the captain of the Enterprise shouldn't actually go on every dangerous away mission, um, which I think was actually a good corrective. Um, You know, the Klingons and the Romulans were basically analogs for Romans and uh, communists and that kind of thing, and you know, authoritarian kind of and JICOMs that too for communists, basically, right? And so, like, uh, they tried to make the villains in the first season of Next Generation. Um, I want to use my words carefully here: perfidious space Jews in the form of the Ferengi, right? They were hook-nosed... Perfidious Space Jews was my college band. Um, <laughs> Playing on know, Friday nights. They were, they were, were whip-wielding, looked like Nosferatu uh, hyper-capitalists, and they just completely didn't work. Um, you know, money lenders in space! Just really was bad. And... Um, and... Um, which is why they very quickly pivoted back to, I mean, this tells you, this is an important point about like human nature and how, what we think of, and particularly in American culture, what we think of as good guys and bad guys. The Ferengi didn't work as bad guys and it was way too heavy handed. And uh, so they very quickly pivoted back to collectivists and authoritarians, you know, Romulans and uh, then the Borg and, and, and so on. Um, all right. So anyway, back to ranking, uh, I never got into that Scott Bakula one. I really didn't. Although the, I'm still very proud if I could find it. My 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 review for the first episode or whatever for a national review, I thought was very good. Um, I liked Voyager. How to rank them? Okay, so I guess I'm just going to rank them. It would be original series, Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, Voyager. Oh, I'm forgetting about. So Strange New Worlds, I think, is fantastic. Is the first Star Trek product, maybe since the original, that is essentially true to what Roddenberry's vision for the thing was. Um, and if it can maintain quality for another couple seasons, I would put it up there with like as the second best, maybe the first best. Um, I really think it's very, very good. I liked Discovery, um, this other Paramount Plus thing, but this is the one where uh, Stacey Abrams is the president of the United Federation of Planets. And it is the wokest, it's turned into like the wokest piece of garbage imaginable. And I don't use that woke stuff pejoratively very much, but it's just every, you know, every character is, is on some sort of sexual identity journey 
It's all about like weird identity politics crap. Um, and like the hero saves endangered species and is a vulnerable, emotional, empathic male. I mean, it's just like, it might as well have been written by, you know, was it Paul Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress style? I mean, it is a friggin' allegory, allegory of woke scripture. And it just really, really annoying. I'll still watch it because I feel like I have to. But um, this is the life I've chosen. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it, it is so didactic and heavy handed now, which is one of the reasons why Strange New Worlds is great because it just says, screw all that. And, um, let's just do Star Trek the way it was intended to be done. And, um, I really liked the first ep- the first season of Picard, uh, but that's turned into hot stinking garbage too. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's so funny. I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast. I got into a fight with some Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist somewhere who was sucking up to the authors, author of it, because um, some famous guy wrote it, um, was or was shepherding it. He thought I was mad at like its anti-Trumpism the last season of Picard, and it was like, of course you would think that because you're an authoritarian conservative MAGA guy. And I was like, yeah, read, you know, you you've got me pegged. And the thing is, like, I took offense at the criticism. I mean, it's, again, I don't remember all this kind of criticism I get usually, but like, some things stick with me. What pissed me off about it was like, he was, he w- it was nerd erasure. He was not acknowledging that the things that offended me about it was it's just utter violence to canon and Star Trek, you know, you know, forget just Star Trek canon in terms of like culture and norms and all that kind of stuff. Star Trek physics. I mean, just like the, 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 the basic rules of how the universe is supposed to work in Star Trek were all thrown out the window so they could do this heavy handed, um, people who like Donald Trump are bad. Um, you know, I mean, if it, it came perilously close to like having, you know, I don't know, like, Counselor Troy just screaming, we're one election away from losing our democracy. It was just terrible the last season of it. And um, 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 so I, I don't know if I actually did a ranking for you there, but you get my general gist of where I'm coming from. Now I know how people feel when I talk to them about KISS. Uh, All right, so you were clearly, you're clearly just begging me here to ask no. you about your kiss cruise. <laughs> I uh, think we could save that until, uh, until the end, but if you want to do it now, I'm happy to, I will, we'll, we'll save it for the end, but like, you know, you keep bringing it up. It's kind of like chief Wiggum and the Simpsons saying, what is this strange fascination with the forbidden closet of mystery? Anyway, go on. What else we got? Um, uh, this I thought was another intriguing question also on television slash pop culture lines. Every sitcom nowadays, the listener asks, seems to focus either on family foibles or single life that extends well into the 30s. Marriages are usually synonymous with the end of a show. No one seems to be able to make a show about marriage anymore, likely because most TV writers aren't married. What do you make of this phenomenon, and will we ever see another show about a marriage between a man and a woman? That is a really interesting insight. I guess I don't watch enough sitcoms these days to know how accurate that description is. I'll just take it on face value that it, or I don't, I'm not saying the person is lying or misleading or anything like that. I just don't know. There may be counterexamples I'm unaware of, but I just don't watch like primetime sitcoms the way I used to. So I'll just take the fact pattern as entered. Um, I think it's a very interesting point. 
I think that part of the problem is that how to put this in a delicate way. So there's a reason why a lot of the daytime interview shows, um, the hosts are more African-American than they used to be. Um, they're also more, they're always sort of more female than male, right? I mean, you know, with the exception of Phil Donahue and, and he was a pretty female male. And it's because you have to think about who's actually watching TV during the day. Right. I mean, the whole soap opera thing to begin with was because you had a large number of women who were stay at home moms during the height of the soap opera era. Soap operas are dying out because women are working now and they're not sitting around. You know, I'm not being, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but they just don't have the TV. <laughs> what no, a crazy world we live in. <laughs> no, but they just don't have the TV on in the background the way, you know, they might have, you know, 50 years ago. And, um, I think a similar dynamic is going on with with uh, primetime TV. So we've talked about this a bunch on this podcast in various ways. If you are married, you know, if you follow the success sequence and you got married, you're likely to be um, at the higher end of the economic distribution. There are all sorts of things that come with that, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I'm not saying everybody who's married or the one or one percenters or anything like that, but um, you just have sociological changes in the population based upon who gets married and who doesn't and all of that. And it would not shock me that the married couples are doing a lot more streaming, right? And watching things out of the traditional sort of broadcast window. Um, I don't know this. This is just pure speculation. But, um, you know, TV writers, TV networks tend to want to program for the audiences that they have rather than the audiences that they want. And, um, you know, I mean, you just look at how Fox is programmed and, um, uh, so it's an, it's a really interesting cultural point that I want to think about more about how much does the portrayal of American life in sitcoms today, uh, reflect the reality of the audience and how much does it do, had to do with the sort of the political and cultural assumptions of, um, of the producers and the showrunners and the executives and stuff, because you do sometimes get, get things going the other way. Um, let's put it this way. Gays in popular culture are, or, or transgender people in popular culture are represented in popular culture in ways that aren't necessarily reflective of demographic realities. And that has to do with certain sort of cultural agenda type stuff. So anyway, it's an interesting topic. I just don't have a clear cut answer. I think it is unfortunate because sometimes TV provides models for how people, you know, uh, suggestions for what is the, the, if not the quote unquote normal, then sort of the ideal way to live and all that kind of stuff. And as someone who actually believes marriage as an institution is better than being single, um, uh, and that marriage is really important for the success of society. Um, portraying marriages in a positive and, and inviting way is is a really important thing for pop culture to do, and it would be bad if it doesn't do that. But I, I just and I just don't know yet. So that was a really rambling, not necessarily dispositive or responsive answer, but I think it at least conveyed um, directionally how I think about this stuff. The best kind of yeah. answer. Yeah. No, no TV and no beer make Jonah go crazy, as someone once said. Something, um, something. 
If you could be named king of any one state, which would you pick and what changes would you make to the laws, governmental structure, or geography? Geography. Uh, wow. <laughs> like, geography. Do I like? Do I get to give like Nebraska mountains? I suppose uh, so. <laughs> um, well, because like kings don't really have that kind of power. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm taking geography out of it for a second. Um, maybe it just means like conservation or that kind of thing. But like, um, um, I think. If I were really good, if this is going to be my full time job of being king of a state, um, and I could actually make real serious policy improvements for people's lives and that kind of stuff, I think it would have to be California or maybe New York. I mean, I, I'm from New York, so a soft spot there. But California has so many, is so much, and so does New York. But there's so much low hanging fruit for ways to sort of to demonstrate that sort of. Uh, property rights, market-based solutions, uh, sort of more market-friendly environmental stuff. Um, you could really have fun just basically um, going to town trying to fix some of the zoning stuff, some of the crime stuff. Um, and if you could do a demonstration project like that with California, um, I think it would just have enormous effects on the entire country. Now, again, I'm king here, right? I'm not governor where I actually have to deal with a legislature that doesn't want to deal with things, I can I can exile. I'm not going to kill anybody, but I can exile people from the state um, who are in my way. Um, so yeah, I, I think California. Plus, just like California is just friggin', you know, the politics are terrible, but like the state itself is just beautiful. And if you could really do something serious about fixing homelessness and crime and um, housing problems there, um, that would just be great for the country, be great for California, and it'd be great for sort of showcasing the kind of policies that I like and I could live well. Uh, along similar lines, if you had one scotch that cost less than $75 to drink for the rest of your life, <laughs> what would it be? Oh, probably. I mean, that's kind of easy. Uh, Balvini. Um, it's a, as, as, as long time listeners know, I do not like the really peaty scotches, the ones that taste like you made tea out of your lawnmower bag. Um, I, but Balvini and a couple of the other McAllens, um, the varieties of McAllen, uh, they finish them in like uh, in sherry casks, um, so it gives it sort of a slightly sweet finish. And and I, it's, I'd say that Balvini is probably the top of my list on that. A, okay, a listener asks, at one time, you floated the idea of creating a space at the dispatch to republish or resurrect evergreen conservative articles so that a younger generation could become aware of them. For example, important pieces published in Commentary, Public Interest, The City Journal by people like James Q. Wilson or Irving Crystal or Tom Sowell. Will that or something like it ever happen? I hope so. Um, if only I knew someone in the upper levels of management of the dispatch who could make this happen. Tell me about it. Uh, Too busy eating chicken wings. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think it's a good idea. I would like to do it. Um, I, I'd like to spearhead it. Um, uh, it's just, it's just fallen by the wayside in terms of a bandwidth thing. Uh, and, um, and, 
migration stuff and you know there's all just all sorts of like strategic planning kind of things that would make this a sort of a, a lower order thing and figuring out where in the real estate we would house this kind of thing and figuring out how much time would it take for I don't know someone like guy to get rights clearance for some of these older things um, is a is something I haven't really explored but um, I'm, I'm I'm actually grateful that the the listener reminded me of it because I, I do think it it'd be a good idea I'm happy for you not to explore it until my successor comes in now that you've <laughs> framed it that way and drawn that detail. Hey, man, you team. asked the questions and you brought those on yourself. You, I would never have known the question was asked. <laughs> Finally, a listener asks, what are your some of your favorite movies of the year so far and do you have any Oscar picks yet? Um, I don't know that I've... I, I don't even know what new movies there were this year. Um, um, uh, I really want to see this Banshees of in Vernon or whatever it's called, the Irish movie. Um, uh, mostly for the dog in it, but anyway, that's a different issue. Um, and uh, I don't... I mean, can you remind me what some of the movies were from this year? Oh, everything, everywhere, all at once. I really like that. I thought that was great. Um, I thought very difficult to pull off a movie of that kind and still have it be entertaining and sort of mass appeal. That was a very good movie. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that, that's good. The Elvis biopic. Didn't see it. I have no desire to see it. Uh, the Northman. Didn't see it. Kind of want to see it, but I hear it's boring. Ta, a new, the new Todd Field movie that just came out with Kate Blanchett is winning a lot of acclaim. Don't know. I mean, I think I've seen commercials for it, but no idea. Good. Well, I can't even think. You have to think back to January, February time. It's like a different world. Yeah. I mean, like, and most of the movies I end up, see, I go to the theater to see are like ones that I want to see with my daughter and they tend to be sort of like big budget. Thing. Oh, there's Maverick, right? That was fun. It's fine. Whatever. Uh, I'm watching, um, actually on Pod's recommendation, I usually don't get sci-fi recommendations from, from Pod. Uh, I, I'm watching The Peripheral on Amazon Prime. It's really good. I really like it. Um, I I was very skeptical when I heard the premise, but um, it's it's solid. It's, it's quite good. And I really like um, not quite as much, but I like uh, Let the Right One In, um, the Showtime adaptation of the the Swedish vampire movie, which is probably the best smart person's vampire movie of the last fifty years. The the Swedish version. I mean, the American version was fine, but. The Swedish version was really, really strong. They made a TV series of the Swedish version. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a, it's like a hybrid version of both. Because I mean, it's the basic premise: child vampire, and then it's you know, it's got to be a series. So like they've changed. Child vampire makes friends with uh, loser non vampire. Um, hilarity ensues. But yeah, it's pretty good. All right, so Kiss Cruise. <laughs> um, well, yeah. What would you like to know? Okay, Joe? so first of all, did the did the Kiss Cruisers uh, have the whole boat, or just were there Kiss Cruisers on the boat, and then quote unquote normal people on the boat? So I, I should say two things. Yes, that we had the whole boat. Uh -huh. This was an a Kiss Enterprise exclusively. We had the whole boat for five days. 
and KISS themselves were there. This was an official thing. Uh-huh. Because everyone always asks, wait, is KISS going to be there? Or is just this just some insane fan gathering at sea? Gene Simmons and all of the current band members were there and performed in face paint twice. Uh-huh. So there was some method to this madness, even though your face doesn't really show that you were Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I believe you. I just, like, like that does not make, like, going on the cruise any more appealing to me. I mean, like, I, it's like, oh, Kiss was there. Now I really want to go. No, it just, like, doesn't work that way. I mean, but, okay, so the entire, what, what, what was... What was the itinerary of the boat? Where'd you go? So the boat, the part, ordinarily, and this has been going on for 10 years, ordinarily the boat would depart from Miami and go to somewhere in the Caribbean. But this year it left from Los Angeles uh-huh. and went to, to Cabo and Ensenada in Mexico. Okay. Yeah. So there was one day in each and then two days where we were at sea the entire time. Okay. I assume this was your first cruise. Uh, yes, it was. And what was the cruise line? Uh, Norwegian. Okay. Okay. Um, did you have, uh, do you have a cabin above or below the sea line? Um, above, uh-huh. I believe I was on. The, I, you believe? Uh, well, I, I, I was on. <laughs> <laughs> did you look when you looked out the window? Did you see water or sky? <laughs> <laughs> Both, Jonah. If you want to get picky, I okay. didn't have a window. Actually, my cabin resembled an, an even smaller version of a New York hotel room. Okay, so it was on the interior. It was yes. not on... Oh, okay, okay. Yes, yeah, it yeah. was. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, listeners should just know, I actually know quite a bit about cruise ship layout because I've been on so many cruises for National Review oh, and right, a few other places. Yeah, yeah, These are two very separate dimensions of nerd, though, is the interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, but I'm not a nerd about cruise ships. I just happen to know about them because no, of mean, experience. National Review slash conservative obsessiveness, obsessiveness is very different to KISS obsessiveness. Yeah. So just as a side note on this in terms of maintaining grievances, even though I say I don't, I try not to do it. Uh, one of the things I will never forgive, it's a pretty long list, but one of the things I'll never forgive Sean Hannity for was that during the rise of Trump in 2015 and 2016 and all that kind of stuff where Sean Hannity, who refuses to fly commercial, and just simply fry, flies private jet would tap into this thing that a bunch of bozos on the web were doing about how national review, you know, which did the against Trump issue and was anti-Trump and all that kind of stuff, uh, that we were these elitists on, on these cruise ships <laughs> and made it sound like Sean was the guy who, you know, eats subway out of the gas station and we were these fancy, you know, uh, uh, fancy past Thurston Howells at sea on our cruise ships. And he would respond when I would criticize him. He said, why don't you go on another cruise? Like, um, like, first of all, I worked on those cruises and don't, no one can tell me I didn't cause I was there and we ran those cruises to make money for a struggling magazine and Sean Hannity, who was making tens of millions of dollars a year, monetizing his horseshit, uh, was playing this BS populist thing. And now that you've been on a cruise, you can see what I mean. It's like the fact that someone was on... Uh, uh, cruises are pretty proletarian things, all things considered for America. I'm not saying that everybody can afford them or whatever, but um, using them as a sort of uh, stand-in for yacht has some inaccuracy to it. So anyway, you, you had one of the... Uh, 
you were down with the Irish, um, as uh, in, in Titanic terms. Um, what did you do for meals? Did they have were the kiss, did the Kiss people all eat together? Um, yes, the, the the Kiss Navy because if you put Kiss Army at sea, you get Kiss Navy, Jonah. It's, it's very clever that way. It's a brotherhood, if you will. Uh-huh. So there were there were restaurants throughout the ship. Most of them, strangely enough, were either Asian bistros or steakhouses. Sure, sure, sure. I, mean, I, I know all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. With the occasional Italian thrown in. But I only went to two of those. Most of the time was spent eating in the this. I don't know if the NR cruise has this in this large buffet on the pool deck level. Sure, the leader which, deck, yeah, which yeah, yeah, yeah. was consistently re- replenished, but it always turned into eating nothing but fries, pasta, pizza, and crepes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe washed down with ice cream for every meal. So that uh-huh. was terrible. You mentioned the, the annual dinner tuxes. I was worried I wouldn't fit into mine after uh-huh. coming back from that. But, yeah, they feed you on cruises. That's part of the strategy. But the longer you, sp- on most of the cruise lines, um, particularly Holland America. The longer you're there, the chemical they use to like preserve the food and like as the the sort of uh, the grease kind of thing, it starts to build up in your body, and you kind of like uh, can't can't eat anymore from the buffet after a while. But okay, so um, what would you say the gender breakdown of the Kiss Navy was? I mean, uh, more so male, but there was a there was it was balanced, Jonah. There was uh-huh. a split. I would were, say were, were there any year 23, 24, something like that? Um, there were some people around my age. There was some a bit younger, some a bit older, some uh-huh. families with kids. Uh-huh. Uh the the demographic breakdown primarily skewed toward Gen X, as uh-huh. you would imagine. Uh-huh. Yeah, but yeah. That's fine. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I'm not judging. I'm just I'm I'm collecting data here. No, I know. And I, I would be So what would be a, what would be a typical conversation you would have with a you know, while breaking bread with a member of the Kiss Navy you had never met before. Would you be all Kiss stuff? Or would it be like, how'd you get into Kiss thing? And then you just like, you, you move on to other things. Uh, column A and, and column B, Jonah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I should say that, you. so you remember that time I went to Nashville to go uh-huh. to a Kiss thing on dry land. Um, uh, some of the friends I made there had, Talked me into going on the cruise, even though I'd wanted to. Do I see. It so you years. had a little bit of a posse on the boat. Yes, and oh, okay. I didn't know. Uh, probably the, the the best friend I made in Nashville, I didn't know was going to be there. And so when I got on board the ship and was looking around just to get my bearings, I was walking through the buffet and saw a meeting out eating outside. And immediately we started talking and then hung out together for the rest of the week. And he introduced me to several more people and. Most conversations were oriented around KISS and KISS-related things. There were broader discussions about life and so on. The funniest part is that and this to, a, to an ordinary human being listening would probably sound like a, living, a, a version of living hell, but it was almost nothing but KISS songs playing endlessly on the speakers in the ship. And... Usually when we would eat at the buffet, we would go out onto the deck and eat outside. And invariably, that Paul Stanley would be screaming in the background to give it kind of a movie soundtrack, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. always had a strange dynamic to the conversations and made it impossible to talk about anything but Kiss. And all right, so 
in the time we have left, because I, I got a board meeting in six minutes and I can't convey to you enough how much more important the board meeting is than this conversation. But um, why don't we invite the board? We can include them in this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, what? What is the reigning? What, what, what is an example of a controversy in Kiss Nation? That really divides people, right? That that uh, I'm not saying that it ends relationships or friendships or anything like that. But let uh, what is a proposition you could put out on a table and a conversation that would would you know divide people over some fundamental understanding of of Kiss fandom? Uh, well, there are many, but the most obvious one I would say is that. Uh, the, so the original four were Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Fraley, and Peter Chris, and they designed the makeup and created their own characters. Ace Fraley and Peter Chris left at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, so the band took the makeup off. Members changed a few times. Then they came back in the 90s, and they, everyone put the makeup back on, but then Ace and Peter left again. Paul and Gene brought in two new members to replace them, but both new members wear their makeup and essentially act, imitate them and sing their songs and try to mimic their voices and so on. Many people uh, ha don't mind that and see it as a natural evolution and still appreciate the musicianship and everything. But to others, this is a horrifying affront that uh, Gene Simmons and all of his greed can never be forgiven for. So, and there, there were, okay. there are usually debates about that. It came up a few times. Okay, so you use the word musicianship. Um, and this, this is purely an informational question here. I, I make no judgment. Uh, I am not a big music guy, right? Uh, I don't have an ear to tell you. I mean, I, I can tell, I can tell you. Uh, I like, feel like I'm being tried. <laughs> uh, you know, look, I mean, I, I understand why like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and those kinds of guys are, are great guitarists, right? Um, I had a friend who was like wildly into Ingway Malmsteen and would explain to me why he was the greatest guitarist in the world. Um, so I, I understand some of that stuff. But, like, outside of KISS fandom, does KISS get, in your opinion, the respect it deserves for its musicianship? Um, do they get, like, put it this way, uh, the Blues Brothers Band was actually a collection of some of the greatest studio musicians ever made. Um, at least this is my understanding. Um, they just paid through the nose. They get great studio musicians. And and even people were like, yeah, the Blues Brothers was sort of a kitschy joke spinoff of the of, of Saturday Night Live. They're like, but you know, some of those guys who played with them are fantastic. Um uh does KISS have get respect for its musicianship? Um uh, or does it get the respect you think it deserves for its musicianship? Well, I, I don't think any of the original four are virtuosos, but they can play. And Ace Fraley in particular introduced, influenced countless guitarists. I think the funny thing is that Kiss's image was always their greatest uh, strength, but also their greatest drawback, because they mm -hmm. obviously never would have dominated American culture for years without the aesthetic, but the aesthetic also led critics and many, again, ordinary human beings to label them as clowns and write them off and look scornfully at the actual songs, even though I don't think the songs and the sound of the music are really any different or 
more stupid than the sound of other rock music and other rock bands from the same time, like ACDC or other groups like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, not interesting, but interesting. No, not in the slightest. Um, <laughs> but we saved it until the end, so this yeah, can shoot so, out. So um, I want to get back to the demographics and the time we have left here. Uh, was there a were there a lot of people going on the like like there was a time in America when young single men of your age mostly did things to meet chicks. Uh, I, I'm just going to be blunt about it. Um, I, I'll put it this way: it's a little delicate. My friends and I in high school used to joke all the time about how the last thing in the world we would want is girlfriends who are just like us, right? Um, because, like, and we used to we used to have these like like all these imaginary conversations we'd have with these girlfriends who were like just like us, and, and we'd be like, "What is wrong with you? Why are you constantly talking about television? You know, you know, like stop burping after you finish a beer. That's gross. You know, I mean, like all of this stuff, things that we do, but that we would not want in a female companion. Would you want to meet a companion?" who was also a huge kiss nerd who spent their own discretionary income on going on one of these boats. And were there people there going on the kiss cruise for, for romantic opportunities? Um, and were those opportunities fruitfully uh, exploited or were they denied? <laughs> the answer to the first question is good Lord. No. The answer to the second question is I believe so. Uh -huh. I cannot speak to whether uh, whether any of those opportunities bore through. Well, I'm sure some did, but probably the majority did not. But hey, when alcohol is going around, no one can really be held responsible, and who can say what may have occurred? Fair enough for now, but we have to conclude <laughs> this conversation. So uh, we'll put a pin in this because I got to get to the board. Adam's got to go, so let's stop here. Okay, so uh, that was the uh, slapdash ask me anything thing. Um, I was a little surprised. Maybe it was because when the question, the request for asks came out um, uh, before Trump's announcement, but we didn't talk about that really. I guess we talked about it a little bit, but um, I'll save all that rank punditry for uh, the, the solo podcast. I have opinions. Um, I know you're all shocked. And uh, I want to say thanks to um, the wonderful people of the National Association of Electrical Distributors for having me down in Tampa this week. It was a, it was a nice, really great bunch of people. Um, and I wish I could have been there longer. And um, uh, and I'll talk about the AI annual dinner, which was um, last night um, on the solo thing as well. So with that, I just want to say uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for your indulgence with... Um, my crazy schedule these days, um, uh, dealing with estates is not fun. Um, and um, what else? Oh, there was one other thing. Oh, I am still taking uh, the fair Jessica to Istanbul and to London um, in December. Uh, this is the uh, long-delayed 20th anniversary uh, trip, which is two years too late. And not on our anniversary, but we're just going to do it. Um, if anybody has, I know London pretty well, but like I'm always looking for restaurant tips and that kind of thing. Or if you know anything about what's going on in London theater, um, drop me a line. Uh, Jonah at the dispatch. 
and uh, Jonah at the dispatch.com. And uh, yes, that's my actual email. Any tips about Istanbul? I haven't been there in 30 years and um, um, I'm sure a lot's changed. Uh, but really looking forward to that. Uh, not psyched about all the domestic terrorism all of a sudden, but that's a conversation for another time. Beyond that, um, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.